0: Imagine, if you will, with me for a moment, a man who is walking along a beach. It's at low tide, and so the beach is, the water is spread out. There's just a vast sandy expanse there. There's little tide pools and eddies and whatnot. But the man is walking around and pacing back and forth as the ocean has descended. And he begins walking like a a dog in a circle at a particular spot. And people in the houses up on the bluff are looking down at him, wondering what he's doing. He makes a few circles, and then he decides, this is it. This is where I will build my house. Takes out a shovel, and he gets to work on that ocean beach. He builds himself some trenches. He makes a foundation for his house. He raises a, a thatched wall thatched with seaweed and everything. He even plants a garden, somewhat optimistically, in the sand right there takes him several hours, but at the end of several hours, he steps back and looks at his completed house. And he admires it there on the sand. He glances over at the, the ocean, and, you know, it looks like it's a little bit closer than it was when he started this work, but pay no attention to that. He turns back around and looks at his house, and then he looks up from his house at the, the cliffs, the bluffs, with all these million-dollar houses up on them where you all live. He looks at those houses, and he has a little bit, honestly, a sense of sorrow for the people in those houses. They have, after all, spent a lot of money for their uh, ocean view houses. And his house cost almost nothing, and it's so much closer to the ocean than theirs are. And so he looks at you with some sorrow and some sympathy going on, and, and then he looks back over at the ocean again, and a little bit closer than before also, but hey, we're not going to think about that and he goes back to looking at the houses and just admiring himself really the more he looks at you the more he admires himself and the more he admires himself the more he forgets about the ocean he might glance over it every now and then but he forgets about that for the most part until he feels something on his feet (laughs) behold (laughs) The water has now crept into his garden. It is in the foundation of his house. It's over his feet and now he's forced to decide. Is he gonna keep looking at you or is he gonna look back at the water? What's he gonna do? He decides to try to look both ways. He's looking every which way and, and you know how this guy's story ends, don't you? Certainly his house will be washed away. This is the story that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 7, verse 26, speaking at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sands. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Such is the lot of the land loving man who builds his house in the ocean. John Bunyan describes this man as Mr. Facing Both Ways. He doesn't know which way to look. As I mentioned, he's a land lover that builds on the water. He wants to stay dry, but he puts his house in a tide pool. This man fancies himself to be a man of science, but he doesn't understand the way tides work. What's the fate of Mr. Facing Both Ways? Well, He will be drowned, of course, eventually. But for now, perhaps, he'll have enough sense to get out of the way and only lose his house. But the saddest part about Mr. Facing Both Ways is do you know what will happen tomorrow? He will come back tomorrow and build his house in the exact same spot. And then act surprised if the water returns. This is the man that James has in mind in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Let's read this together. But if any of you lacks wisdom, James says, Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the winds for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable, in all of his ways. Now, before we get to Mr. Facing both ways, James begins by addressing you. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he's writing to the recipients of the letter of James, and by extension, us. He's saying, if any of you here at Emmanuel Bible Church in this day lack wisdom, you need to ask God. Remember, the context of this is dealing with trials. The overarching theme of James 1 is how to count it all joy, James 1, verse 2, when any trials you encounter, when you stumble across any trials in life, when you fall into any adverse circumstances, count it all joy. That's the point here. James did not take a week off between verse 4 and 5 like we did. (laughs) So when you're reading James for the first time, this is an obvious connection. If any of you lacks wisdom, the implication, if any of you lacks wisdom in how you're dealing with trials. I mean, the command here is that you are supposed to count it joy when you encounter trials. That is way easier written than done, right? (laughs) And so you encounter trials. There you are going through your life, you encounter trials. And the million dollar question here is, how do I count it all joy? I don't understand how. That's the you right here, if any of you lack wisdom. The way it's written in the Greek, it implies that you will find yourself in this circumstance, just like verse 2 describes the person who will encounter trials. Verse 5 describes the person who will lack wisdom. That's a guarantee for you. Not only will you find trials in life, but you will lack wisdom. Yes, even you. (laughs) And so James writes to you to tell you how to respond when trials come, how to find wisdom. The problem with Mr. Facing Both Ways is not that the ocean encroached on his house. That's not his ultimate problem. Trials come upon Christians and non-Christians. Trials come upon the wise and the fools. Trials come upon everybody. The problem with Mr. Facing Both Ways is he does not understand why. And that's the difference between him and believers, Christians. When trials come to our life, we know that God is at work. We know that God is working to display his glory and for our good. That's the basic difference here. Now, you have to remember, something we talked about last week, that most trials you encounter are not your fault. You're an innocent victim of most trials. And and again, that varies person to person. Some people, let's say, uh, some trials are the result. For everyone, some trials are the result of your own sinful choices and your own folly. That's true. But the ratio varies. For some people, 10% of their trials might be the fault of their own folly. For other people, it might be 90%. And I will name names if I have to. (laughs) (laughs) And this is what changes over your life. The older you get, the wiser you get, the more mature you get the less of your trials are a result of your own folly, because you've learned some lessons along the way. For younger people, it seems like all of their trials are their own fault, but hey, that's, that's life, as they say. What James is talking about here is for trials that were not caused by you. You're the innocent victim here, so to speak. How are you supposed to respond to them? You will lack wisdom, and you are supposed to count it all joy, so how? And that's what James is going to tell you how to do this morning. Let me give you an outline, how to find wisdom in a sea of trials. How to find wisdom in a sea of trials. The trials will come. The oceans of life will ebb and flow. You will get caught up in them. How do you respond? You're supposed to respond by looking for wisdom. How do you find wisdom? First, we need to define what wisdom is. Let me give you my definition. Wisdom is the moral skill of applying biblical principles to life. That's what wisdom is. It's a moral skill. Wisdom is not the way the world defines it in terms of IQ or intelligence or academics. There's a lot of foolish people who have high IQs. There's a lot of PhDs that you wouldn't trust to cross the street on their own without a crossing guard, if you know the kind of people I'm talking about. (laughs) That's not wisdom. Wisdom is a moral ability to apply biblical principles to life. And this is true of all life, but it's particularly true in times of trials. Now, the wisdom literature in the Bible is about this. Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, those, it's the wisdom literature. They're giving you principles for how to live your life. And they're not rules. The wisdom literature is not 100% guarantees. They're general principles that are generally true. Wisdom is how you apply them to drive this point home some of them even contradict themselves life is meaningless and then everything matters you know what are you supposed to do with that or proverbs says do not argue with a fool in his folly lest you become like him and in the very next verse argue with a fool in his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes well which is it well they're both true And wisdom is the ability to determine which you apply in which circumstance. And that's particularly true in times of trial. Wisdom and maturity for the Christian go hand in glove. The more mature in Christ you are, the wiser you are. The wiser you are in Christ, the more mature you are in Christ. And how does God mature you in James 1? Through trials. When you understand that connection, that trials are what matures you and wisdom is what grows you, then you'll get this sentence, and I'll say it twice because I want you to hear me. In a trial, your greatest need is wisdom. In a trial, your greatest need is wisdom. A loved one has cancer? Your greatest need is not a good doctor, your greatest need is wisdom. A loved one dies unexpectedly. Your greatest need is not a miraculous resurrection. Your greatest need is wisdom. Because what is God doing in this trial? Well, he's displaying his glory, and is for your good. And you don't understand how. Well, you need wisdom, my friends. You need wisdom. Remember last week, we saw that God sent trials to help you grow in maturity. How do the trials make you mature? By growing you in wisdom. That's why you need to get on this search. Well. First, how do you gain wisdom in a sea of trials? You confidently seek wisdom through prayer. You confidently seek wisdom through prayer. That's what verse 5 says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. You ask God to help you. And when scripture says we should ask God, it's certainly meaning prayer. You pray to God and ask for help. Job begins the wisdom literature. And the main point in Job is not the beginning or the end. Like most Hebrew poetry, the main point is the middle. The exact middle of the book of Job is this, Job 28, where the author asks this question, where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man doesn't know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living. God understands its way, and he knows its place. Where do you find wisdom? Hey, you can search in the ground all day long. You can search in the mines and in the caves. You can ask the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. They won't give it to you. But when you turn to God, He knows wisdom. He knows where to find it, and that makes sense. Romans 16, verse 27 says that God is the only wise God. And so when you're searching for wisdom, you need to search from the God of the Bible. It cannot be found anywhere else. He alone makes people wise. And I say you should search confidently. You should pray confidently because God will answer this prayer. God gives wisdom generally is the point of verse 5. He gives to all generously, it says. Remember, Proverbs 3 describes wisdom as a woman calling out in the street saying, hey, come, listen, come get wisdom. I mean, God is revealing wisdom. Day after day pours forth speech. Night after night declares knowledge. There is no place in all of the world where their voice is not heard. Their words go to the end of the earth. God is a communicative God. He is displaying, magnifying, amplifying his glory this gets back to your very basic question i mean all theological questions work back to this end why did god create the world he created the world for his glory we can magnify his glory by experiencing it by by radiating it by emanating it we magnify the glory of the lord and god reveals that to us i mean god by nature is a communicator this is the, the essence of eternity, that the, the Father always has a word with him. Even before he created the world, even before there was any land, before Genesis 1-1, God was still a communicator. God was loved by nature and a communicator by nature. He loves himself and that the Father loves the Son, loves the Spirit. There's communication from the Father. The Father always has his word with him. That's why Jesus is called the word of God. He was the word of God before the universe began. God by nature communicates. He by nature reveals himself. That's why the word of God comes to earth as a man, to communicate the nature of God. The word of God in Proverbs 8 is personified as wisdom. So when you're going through a trial and you're saying, I need wisdom, understand what you're saying is you need God to reveal himself. And of course he will. He created the universe for this purpose. I mean, when you're praying to God for wisdom, recognize what you're praying for is for God to work in you the exact thing he's doing in all of creation, namely displaying his glory. He's not reluctant. James perhaps even has in mind Matthew 5:45 where it says God causes his rain and his sun to fall on the just and the unjust alike. God does not discriminately give rain. It falls on everyone. He doesn't discriminately let the sun shine. It's not like the the rain only falls on the farms of Christians or the sun only lights the paths of Christians. (laughs) No, God is generous in giving common grace. So of course, he will also be generous in giving wisdom to believers. You're not having to pry it out of his hands. We're not dealing with, say, the distant God of Islam or the merit-based God of so many other religions that you have to work for God's favor and do these things to get, you know, I give you this and you give me that kind of attitude. That's not the God of the Bible. He's communicative, revealing himself continually through his Son and through his word. the purpose of this verse is to make you bold in asking for that wisdom. He says he gives it to you generously, and secondly, they're without reproach. See that phrase? God is not upset about having to give you wisdom. He doesn't want you to justify your request. Like, hey, fill this form out in triplicate, and then we'll see. And you think, why would God say he gives wisdom without reproach? I mean, shouldn't that be obvious? Well, some people feel guilty about asking for wisdom. Put yourself in this person's shoes. Say a parent who's raised his kids for for decades. From the time they were born until they were 20 and left the house, or to make it more modern, 27 and left the house. (laughs) And for all 27 of those years, the parents were teaching the kid what wisdom is and how to trust God. God is sovereign over trials. And when trials come, you count it all joy. And this is how you think, and this is how you process it. The parents have been teaching this for 27 years. Now the kids are gone, and then a trial comes into the parent's life. And he's been teaching this for for decades, how to trust God through trials. But now it comes to him, and he doesn't know quite what to do. He doesn't know quite how to count it all joy. He's at a loss. Of course he is, because verse 5 says, you'll be at a loss for wisdom. So he's at a loss. Now, is he supposed to pray? Do you see how easy it is to have the attitude of, I've been teaching others for so long. How am I now supposed to pray for something I've, you know, ostensibly had to give to others? Maybe God will be upset with me for asking for wisdom, for needing it. Shouldn't I have it on my own? It's a certain amount of pride that builds up in you. And James says, no, you shouldn't have it on your own. You should ask God and he won't be reluctant. He doesn't keep a record of your wrongs. For those who are in Christ, listen, follow the logic from the greater to the lesser here. If God took your sins from you and nailed them to the cross with Christ, if he doesn't hold your trespasses against you anymore, he's fully aware of all the times you've sinned and he's removed that from you, counted it to Christ who then died in your place bearing the penalty for that sin, rose from the grave, you place your faith in that, you now have newness of life with no sins to your account, that God punished his son for your sins, do you think that he will be disappointed that you want his help in knowing how to live in Christ? (laughs) If he removed your sins from you, of course he's gonna give you wisdom. Of course he's gonna delight when you ask for help. God knows our frailty. When you're praying to God through Jesus Christ, understand you don't have a high priest who's unaware of the difficulty of being a human. You don't have a high priest who who knows not temptation. You have a high priest who is tempted and tried in every category of temptation and trials that we've been through. He experienced them. He has a sympathetic ear for us. And he hears our prayers. And so he generously gives wisdom. that's what the end of verse 5 says. It will be given to him. Now, it's important to pause here and ask yourself a question. What will God give you in a time of trial? Well, it says wisdom. It does not say that God will let you know exactly, precisely why he's doing what he's doing and when he's doing it. And that's so often what people want James 1, verse 5 to mean. So again, to go back to the analogy, a, a spouse, let's say, who has cancer. This verse does not say that you can pray to God and ask God, why her and why not somebody else? What did we do to deserve this? That is not the prayer you get answered because that's not wisdom, my friends. But engage that thought for a second and you can understand why God doesn't reveal that. I mean, in a sense, you're unable to, to hear that truth because here's one person with cancer, what is God doing in that scenario? What, what is God doing in this life? Well, God is doing 10,000 things. One thing he's doing is with the person who actually has the cancer. That's one thing that God's doing. Another thing he's doing is in your own life. Another thing is in the lives of your kids, in the lives of your parents, in the lives of coworkers, in the lives of people from your church, in the lives of the doctors and the nurses at the hospital. I mean, he is doing 10,000 different things. How could you understand all that? How could you see how they're all connected? How could you comprehend what God is doing? I mean, you cannot. So why her and not me? Why me and not them? Why this person, not that? You don't have a grid for that. But how about this? Lord, I know one of the 10,000 things you're doing is my own sanctification. I know that. I mean, that's true. I know that verse 2 says I'm supposed to count it all joy. I know that also. I know that I don't want to count it all joy right now. I mean, intellectually, I'm there. My heart is not there. So you've got to help me, Lord. How am I supposed to proceed? What am I supposed to believe about you? What am I supposed to do to grow my trust in you? How do I guard my faith through this? That's what wisdom is. And when you pray that way, God will generously answer your prayers. So the trial comes, the wind and waves of life come, and you're supposed to look at God and trust that he's at work. And you know, this trial will not destroy your faith. Do you know how I know that God will give you the wisdom to go through your trial? Well, one reason is because verse five says so, but I have other reasons too. <laughs> because... With every trial, with every temptation, temptation, trial, same word in the Greek. With every temptation and trial, there is a way of escape that does not involve sin. Every single one. Do you know that? So you're going through a trial and you're tempted to complain and be angry and be bitter and to doubt and to not have faith. Listen, there is a way through this trial that does not involve those sins. Because every trial, God gives one. Remember, God will not give you a test or a trial beyond what your faith can endure. He won't. And true believers cannot lose their salvation. So this trial will not strip you of your faith. It won't do it. It can't do that. Because if God gave you Christ and if God gave you his spirit, then certainly he will give you the wisdom to endure your trials. Now, how does God give you your wisdom? Do you get like a wisdom shot, (laughs) a wisdom booster, an angel? who tells you what to do, a fortune cookie with the answer to your questions? (laughs) No, God gives wisdom through what theologians call the normal means, the normal means. And that's a phrase you won't be quizzed on later, but it's helpful for you to know the normal means. Let me tell you what the normal means are. The first normal means is the word of God. You gain wisdom through reading the word. The word of God contains the wisdom of God. And as you read it, you learn it. I'm sure you've heard this said before, but if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. If you want to hear God speak out loud, read the Bible out loud. That's the way God reveals his wisdom. Secondly, through the internal conviction and the leading of the Holy Spirit, that as you read the word and you're applying its principles to your life, the Holy Spirit, who indwells all of those who are in Christ, convicts you of sin and fuels the desires in your heart. That's the working of the Spirit. When you're going through a trial and you know the word of God says to rejoice and you're wrestling through how do I do this and the spirit convicts you of areas of pride and areas you need to grow in humility and you decide, you know, what? I will rejoice. That's not your flesh that's saying rejoice. That's the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. That's how God is delivering, conveying that wisdom through your trial. And thirdly, through the wisdom of others. Through the wisdom of others. You go to other wise, godly people for counsel and they help you. If you go to immature people for wisdom in a trial, you will get immature counsel, right? But if you go to wise people for counsel and trial, you will get wise counsel. What does it mean to be wise? Well, again, it means to have a lifetime of experience of applying God's principles to everyday situations and particularly trials. You're not going to get a wisdom infusion. An angel is not going to broadcast what you're supposed to do. But through the word, and through the indwelling spirit, and through the counsel of others, God will lead you through this trial. Don't build a wall around your life when you go through a trial. Don't box out those who are wise and say, oh, this is a private matter for me and my family. No, you need wise counsel from others. Matthew 12, verse 20 says, a battered reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff. He will not be harsh to you. He will not crush you in your trial. Rather, the Lord will minister to you through his spirit and through godly counsel. So this is what believers do. You're going through a trial. You trust the Lord. You pray the Lord. You look at his word. You meditate on scripture and let the spirit do his work. And you seek wisdom from others. That's how believers respond to trials to produce joy in their life. But this is not a promise to everybody in the world. It is only a promise to believers, which leads to the second point. Confidently seek wisdom through Christ. You're seeking wisdom through prayer and you're seeking this wisdom through Christ. This is verse six, but he must ask in faith. You must be a Christian, in other words. You have to have faith in God that what he's doing in this trial is for his glory and for your good. In other words, you must be in Christ. If you don't have faith, then you are outside of Christ. Now, let me just pause here and talk about what I think is a very common misunderstanding of this verse. I think many people look at this verse and say, okay, I'm a Christian, I believe the gospel, but I'm having a hard time with wisdom and a hard time with joy, so I'm going to pray for it. But you know, I doubt that, this is, is, that God is actually going to answer my prayer the way I want him to. And so that's me in verse 6. Not true. He's not talking about the Christian who is weak on faith. He's not talking about the Christian that doubts. That's not who he's dealing with here. And let me tell you why I know he's not dealing with that person. Because the Bible says, whatever you ask in faith, you will receive. This is speaking Matthew 21, verse 2. And he's talking about trials, of course. When you're in a trial and you're looking for God's wisdom in the trial, and you ask in faith, you will receive it. The word enough is not in that. Right? You got to ask with enough faith and really, really mean it. Click your heels. In Mark 9, Jesus descends from the, the Mount of Transfiguration, probably the pinnacle of his earthly ministry. And he comes down the mountain. And you remember what he finds there? The disciples playing tug of war with some boy, and the boy's dad, and the crowd. The boy was mute and had a demon in him. And the, the dad brought the boy to the disciples. And the disciples couldn't cast the demon out. And, and it, it's just a melee down there. And Jesus interrupts it. And the boy, you know, what's going on here? And everybody's blaming each other. The disciples blame the dad and the crowd. And the crowd blames the, I mean, it's just a mess. And, The dad brings the boy to Jesus and says, I wanted the demon cast out of him. I wanted him healed, but they couldn't do it. Can you do it? And you remember Jesus' response almost with a sense of incredulity. Can I do it? you mean, can I? I'm talking to Jesus here. Can he do it? I don't know. (laughs) Jesus says, of course I can do it. All things are possible for those who believe. And remember, the boy's father says, Lord, I believe, I love the Lord there. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus does not say, Oh, my friends, you need to read James 1, verse 6. Because James 1, verse 6 hadn't been written yet, but for other reasons also. (laughs) The point is that the guy believes, but he's having doubt and he's going through a trial right now, and Jesus is ministering to him. The point is, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, it's sufficient to have prayers answered, it's sufficient to move a mountain. Let me tell you a theological principle that I've learned and I believe, I didn't learn it from a theological book, but I believe it's true anyway. If you're making a theological statement about yourself and it has the word enough in it, it's wrong. You're going to be in error. The word enough can only be applied to Jesus, not to you. In other words, have I obeyed God enough? No is the answer. Do I have enough love for Jesus? No. Do I have enough faith? No. Does Jesus have enough love and enough faith and enough obedience? Yes. Do you? No. The answer is always going to be no. So get rid of the word enough. And that confuses people. Oh, do I love Jesus enough to be saved? Stop it. Don't use that word. You can't have enough coffee. You can't have enough faith. (laughs) Always grow. Always grow in your faith. There's no concept of enough. Stop it with the enough. So James is not here in verse 6 rebuking Christians that are going through a trial that are suffering with doubt. He's not doing that. He's talking about a different category of person, the person who is not in faith, the person who is outside of faith. And that's our dichotomy here. You have those who are in faith. How do Christians respond in trials? Well, they respond by saying, I'm going to rejoice, because I know that God is sovereign over this. God is at work for his glory and for my good. I believe that, but I need help with it right now, so Lord help. That's how Christians respond. How do non-Christians respond? Well, all kinds of ways. One of the ways, one of the many ways, is to say, I don't think God is at work in this. And I'm not going to count it joy either, by the way. This is not for my joy. There is nobody behind this. God is not in charge of this. This is the world doing things, man. We're all just matter in motion. There's no one directing this. I'm not being tested by anybody. I'm not being tried by anybody. God is not in charge of this. Listen, that is not a Christian response. That's what James is talking about here. The person who is going through a trial needs wisdom should ask in faith. On the other hand, the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the winds. This is the double-minded man. This is Mr. Facing Both Ways. He doesn't trust that God is at work. Do you remember last week we talked about the fork in the road? And you're going through a trial, and fork one this way is to say God is not in control of this. God isn't doing anything through this, and there's no eternal purpose behind it. And that road leads to despair, and there's no hope down that road. You back up, and you go on the Christian road. God is in control. God is doing something good through this. It is for his glory, and I trust him. That road has hope. James is talking about the person over on this road. You're going down that road that God's not in control, that God is not good, that Christ didn't go through suffering like this. You're going down that road? You're going to get beaten up down that road. There is nothing for you there. You're like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, just getting beaten and battered. He's talking about Mr. Facing Both Ways. Remember him? In the house in the sand, and he can't figure out if he should look at the trial coming or look at the other people watching. He can't figure out if he should look at, the God, at God who's sending the trial, or if he should look at the people who are watching him respond. He's going back and forth. Sometimes he looks at the mirror and looks at himself. That's this man. He can't decide if he's living for God or if he's living for the world. He just cannot make up his mind, oh, what a hard choice. He can't do it. When he's around Christians, he acts like the Christian. When he's around those in the world he acts like those in the world he's like water he's hot and boiling when he's around heat he's cold and frozen when he's around ice that's what mr facing both ways is like again if the essence of christianity is to say that god is in control of this and it's for his glory and my good the essence of mr facing both ways is to say hey who knows what's going on here I'm angry at God for it, but uh, you know, I'm just looking all over the place for help. He's not even talking here about the consistent atheist. The consistent atheist turns his back to God, looks at the world, and says, I don't believe in God. There is no such thing as God. This trial is not from God, because there is no God. And then the trial comes. What does that consistent atheist do? Well, he just does the best that he knows how to do. That's what he does. At least you know what principles that man stands on. Admire that consistent atheist, not for his theology, but at least for his consistency. That's not so with Mr. Facing Both Ways. The trial comes to him, and he looks at God, upset. What are you doing? You might tap him on the shoulder and say, what are you talking about? Who are you praying to? I'm praying to God. Do you believe in God? No. (laughs) Or you hear the person who says, I don't believe in God because, because God's, God's not running the world like I would want it run. Work on your logic there for a second. You don't believe in God because you don't like what God is doing? That doesn't make any sense. I don't believe in God because God is not loving like me. Wait, the God, what God is not loving like you? The one you don't believe in is not loving like you? Again, this is foolish talk. It's foolishness. It's Mr. Facing Both Ways. He can't even be a consistent atheist, much less a consistent believer. He howls with the wolves and bleats with the sheep. That's this man. He's all over the place. If God acted more like me, then I would believe in him. Well, good luck with that, my friends. I mean, listen, if you don't believe that God is sovereign over the trial, why would you pray to him for wisdom about how to get through the trial? I mean, work on that basic level. That's what James is talking about. You don't believe that God is in control, then why are you praying to him for help? Do you think you will get an answer to your question? What kind of answer could possibly satisfy that person? If God is not even in control. Does he even hear your prayer? I mean, work on that level. The whole statement, there's no atheists in foxholes. Great, who's the atheist in the foxhole praying to? And can that God hear his prayer? And what category of reality are you dealing with here? This person simply cannot make up his mind if he likes God or doesn't, if he believes in God or doesn't. His eyes are either on the mirror, on himself, on God, or on the watching world. Spurgeon said about this person, you can trust him only as long as you can look him in the eye. (laughs) Because he turns his back and walks away from you, you don't know what mask he put on. You don't know if he's as good of his, as his word is. They turn around and refuse to pray throughout their life. The trial comes, and they act shocked. Shocked, I tell you, that God doesn't listen to their prayers. So what happens to this man? Well, verse 6, he'll be driven and tossed by the wind. He's like the surf of the sea. He'll be battered by this world like the flotsam and jetsam. He just gets churned and churned and churned. He'll eventually get swallowed by the world, forgotten by time. He won't have a legacy because he had no principles to stand upon. His life's work will erode, and there's nothing left when he goes. That man, verse 7, ought not to expect he'll receive anything from the Lord. Just that phrase, what a a phrase of derision, isn't it? That man. Again, he's not talking about believers here. Would you expect to see a verse in the Bible that says that man, that believer ought not to expect to receive anything from the Lord? This person, verse 8, is a double-minded man. He's got both faces. He carries them around in his bag, decides which one he'll put on depending upon the circumstance. That man is unstable in all of his ways. So what's the solution if you're that person? If you find yourself beaten by the trials of this world, no, no God to hear your prayer, no one to take away your sin, what's the solution? The solution is 1 Corinthians one twenty four: to believe that Christ is the wisdom and the power of God, to confess your sins. Your, your solution is to put on faith, to repent from your sins and believe the gospel. Until you do that, the, the answers to your prayers are irrelevant. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I would have these non-Christian high school kids come to me for wisdom about what college to go to. My response was always, I mean, I kind of don't care. You have bigger things to worry about. How about I decide if you're going to follow Christ? And then I would love to talk about college, but I'm not going to talk about what college to go to. You can't decide if you're going to follow Christ or not. The person who, who doesn't follow the Lord but really wants your help in working out a marriage problem, or really wants your help to figure out You know, which job to take, what to major in. I mean, come on. You're not going to receive any help from the Lord in that circumstance until you put your faith in him. Remember Job 28 again? To man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. You want God's wisdom? Step one, to trust Christ, to fear Yahweh, and to depart from evil, that's understanding. Repent from your sin, trust Christ, when you do that, you build your, your house of your life on the rock of Christ. And if you build, by the way, if you build on the rock of Christ, the Bible doesn't say no trials will come. If you build your life on the foundation of Christ, the Bible does not say the ocean won't touch you, right? <laughs> Instead, notice what Jesus says, Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods did come, And the winds blew against it and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Listen to me, Mr. Facing Both Ways would get drowned by the smallest of eddies. But the person who's built his life on the rock of Christ can withstand the tsunamis that come. The person who's unstable gets tripped up by the smallest of trials. But the person whose life is built on the rock will endure with integrity and joy, glorifying the Lord. Lord, we're thankful that you are the sovereign over the universe and that you have revealed yourself through your son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful that you've given us faith. It's not of our own doing. We could never earn it. We could never do enough to please you. We could never do enough to earn wisdom. So we're thankful that you give it to all those who are in your Son. You give it to those who place their faith in Christ. Lord, it seems an impossible command to rejoice through trials. And yet, it's what the Bible declares. So we're thankful that what you've commanded here, you have also provided through giving us your Spirit, who dwells inside of us, through giving us your Son, who is our sacrifice, our ransom for sin who ran the race marked out before him and during the cross, scorning its shame, so that we might be like him and run after him. Lord, we're thankful that you are our guide. You are our model and our example. Lord, I pray with gratitude, knowing that there are many people in this church who have endured hardships and have endured trials that would devastate others, but they've endured it with steadfastness with the spirit of joy. Those people are beacons of hope for us, beacons of, of light, beacons of an example of what joy through trials looks like. We're grateful for Emmanuel Bible Church knowing that there are many people like, like that here. We feel fortunate because of those trials. We know there are some churches that don't have those examples to look at, but we do. So we're thankful for them. Lord, we pray that, we would have that same kind of courage and conviction to count it all joy when we encounter various trials, to seek wisdom from you confidently through prayer and confidently through the word, Jesus Christ himself. It's in his name we pray, amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington DC area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.